Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. We're so grateful that you found us. The JCBC Podcast is a collection of sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Right now, we're in a new series. It's called How to Be Human. We hope if you're in town or close by, you'll stop in and join us 11 o'clock Sunday mornings. Until then, subscribe and follow along. Today, we bring to conclusion a series that has been really meaningful to me, if for no one else. A series that we've been calling How to Be Human. For 19 weeks now, we've been marveling with the writer of Genesis who says that we are created in the image of God, but not only the image of God, we're made in the likeness of God. That means that we are made in such a way to have the capacity to live in this world like we are in the image of God. That means we can do God-like things in creating and imagining and caring and serving and self-emptying for one another. We have been studying and reminding ourselves of the witness of the psalmist who said in Psalm 8, what are human beings, that you're mindful of them? What are mortals that you even care for them? And yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and with honor. And it doesn't take long for us in this human journey to recognize that we don't always live up to and into that high identity as creatures made in the image and likeness of God. That's why we need a savior, a rescuer, One to come and rescue us from ourselves, from our own patterns of self-destruction and sin that lead to death. So over these past several weeks, we've been attempting to imagine what it means to experience the human journey through the lens of Jesus, the one who came to show us how to do this in a way that honors God's original intent when God thought us into being. So we've talked about every kind of imaginable human experience, everything from breaking to being made whole again, to rising, to falling, to fearing, to failing. We've talked about what it means to be vulnerable and maybe it's not that bad because in the midst of our vulnerability, we find a strength that comes from someone beyond ourselves. We've talked about what it means to be angry and what it means to forgive We've talked about what it means to adopt a rhythm of rest in this life that mirrors the very rhythm of God. And we could talk for another month of Sundays about human experiences as they are intended to be lived through the lens of Jesus, the Christ of God. But of all of the experiences that we are to name and mention, you know, we gotta quit talking about this sooner or later. So today is the last Because I have a sermon series that we launch next week that I'm really excited about. So tune in this week to hear about that. However, if we ended a sermon series on how to be human and didn't talk about the thing I want to talk about today, it would be incomplete. And in order to introduce you to that very important, maybe most important topic of all, I want to refer to an old poem written many years ago by Linda Ellis. And I'm going to only quote a portion, just an excerpt from this poem. 
as it speaks about the frailty of life, the limitations of life, the, the sense in which we cannot live forever and yet in our living, there can be some loving. Listen to what she says in a, in a poem called The Dash. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For the dash represents all the time that they spent alive on earth and now only those who loved them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. Perhaps the most fitting way to end a sermon series on how to be human is for me to remind you, my sisters and brothers, with all of the love I can muster in this pastor's heart, that human beings come with expiration dates. We don't live forever. There is a beginning and an ending to the journey that we make. And that space between our start date and our expiration date is where all of life happens. It's where every good decision is made and every bad decision is repaired. It's in the dash between our first breath and our last breath that we make decisions that have eternal impact. Now, we, we deny this reality about ourselves. We don't like to talk about death. That's not a fun topic to bring up at parties. That's a real buzzkill to talk about our expiration date. We, we live in a society that is prone to ignore mortality itself. We don't talk about it. We don't think about it. We certainly don't want to make it the subject of a, a sermon on a Sunday morning. However, the truth is we all have an expiration date. Do you know that we're the first culture, first society in the history of our species so prone to avoid talking about death that we have gotten to the point where we can have funerals without the presence of a dead body in the room. And yet, our bodies are preaching to us every day, amen? Our bodies speak to us and they they prophesy that that day's coming because along the way, as we make our journey on this dash we call the human journey, we we experience little micro deaths all the time, don't we? We lose our flexibility. We lose our agility, our mobility. Sometimes we lose our hearing. Sometimes we lose our seeing. Sometimes we lose our memory Or did I already say that? (laughs) I can't. Our bodies 
are telling us all the time that this is coming. And, and yet, it's part of the design. So I want to talk for just a few moments about this because there was a man in the New Testament who we call Paul. And at the end of his life, he reflected back over the journey that he had made and he came to some conclusions. See, even if we fear death and don't want to talk about death, the reality is thinking about it and becoming aware of it is how we are better informed and transformed to live the living years. This is why, as a pastor, I would rather do a funeral than a wedding any day. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Because weddings are fun. I love weddings. I love a good wedding. There's laughter and joy and excitement and anticipation and there's giddiness in the air. It's all great. No wonder the Lord used the wedding as a great parable to understand what it means to be united with God. And no wonder the New Testament speaks of the church being the bride of Christ as we experience the intimacy of love throughout all eternity. I get it. I love a good wedding. But the truth is at the end of the day, most of the time, that couple has less than a 50% chance of making it. That's how the stats are stacked. There's about a 50-50 chance that thing will go the distance. But at a funeral, there's 100% chance that you know what you're there to do. And there's also 100% chance that 100% of the people in the room at a funeral at one point or another in that hour of service will say to themselves, one day it will be me and I will be lying up there and they will come by and see me for the last time and there will be somebody saying some words about me and I wonder how I've done. And at a funeral, at some point, regardless where you have come from, what your background is, how resourced you are or aren't, depending on, or notwithstanding your, your gender, notwithstanding your, your race, your ethnicity, even despite your religion, everyone at a funeral at some point thinks, one day, that's going to be me. And as we think of the dash of our lives, we begin to take a kind of spiritual inventory. How am I doing? What's it all been worth? Where's it all going? Paul, chained to a cold, dank prison cell in Rome, at the end of his life is thinking about his dash, thinking about the years that he has spent for Christ. Suffering, beaten, broken, persecuted. And he tells this little church in Philippi that it's all been worth it. He goes on to tell this church, the church of the Philippians, that I've accomplished everything that a man can accomplish in life. I've achieved every ribbon and accolade. I've collected every trophy. I have risen to the top of every hierarchy, both religious and secular. I've seen it all. And yet at the end of my life, as I consider the longevity of the dash between my birth and my death, I consider all of it worthless when compared to knowing Christ as my savior. There's a line that he uses at the very beginning of that letter. 
He says, yes, I've been suffering and yes, I've been persecuted and he's awaiting a trial before Nero and he will ultimately be executed and he knows this is coming and you know what he says? It's been worth it because for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. I wanna speak to you for just a couple of minutes more about the reality that it is possible to simultaneously Be aware of your mortality, that you have an end date, an expiration date, and at the same time, be unflappable because the Christ who has redeemed you will see you through to the other end of your dash. Now, it's possible for you to hear what I'm talking about today and think that this sermon is somehow about a, hey, you know, life is short, so you better, you better, you know, live while you can kind of the carpe diem kind of sermon that we have from time to time. You kind of think, well, maybe it's a, it's a sermon that's, well, gather ye rosebuds while you may. You know, we have a dash. It's, it's not that long, not many years, maybe only 78.6 on average can we live. Some live longer, some live shorter. So you better live it up. Carpe diem, you know, seize the day. But I'm here to tell you this sermon is not a call for you to seize the day. It is a call for you to seize the way. To seize the way, the way, the truth, and the life in the person of Jesus, the Christ of God. Because the truth is this about us, about our species, about the human being. One of the most ancient sayings in the book of Proverbs, one of the most ancient wisdom sayings, reminds us of a truth that was true then just as it is true now. There is a way that seems right to human beings, but its end is the way to death. You and I construct a life around the way that seems reasonable in the cultures in which we live. And in this particular society in which we live, we assume that the way to win in being a human being in this short dash that we call life is to go and compete and climb and contend and compare until you're on top of the world and you've constructed a life. So we get all we can and we can all we get. And then we sit on our cans. Yeah. And we're a little bit like the man in the parable whose harvest was amazing. He had never seen a harvest like this. And he said to himself, I have a problem now. I don't know where to put all that I have. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my old barns and I'll build up bigger barns and I'll store all my stuff because this has been the point. And I will say to myself, soul, You have ample goods for many years. This dash is infinite. I'll live forever. So relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God said to him, you fool, do you not know that this very night your life is required of you and all these things that you have, whose will they be? I want to talk to you about seizing a way to live in this life that never ends in the next life. Don't forget that Jesus, the one who we've been talking about for a little time now, is the one who went by many, many, many titles 
We have regal titles. We have royal titles by which to call him and he is deserving of all of them. We, we call him son of God. We, we call him the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. We call him Messiah. We call him the prince of peace. But of all the names that we can call him, there was one name he preferred more than any other name and he referred to himself more by this title than any other title, it was son of man. Or in some translations, son of humanity or the truly human one because in the person of Jesus, the Galilean, the Christ of God was enfleshed. And in his life, he became what God had hoped for humanity from the very beginning. And he is the truly human one by which we design our lives. He is the way we live our life. And often you and I will think of Jesus and his mission here to simply save us from our sins and get us to heaven when we die. And that's part of it. Thanks be to God. That's not all of it. Christ came not simply to repair or redeem us from our sins and get us out of this life into the next life. Christ came not simply to be our fire insurance so that somehow we can be sure that we see heaven when we stop breathing. He did that as well. But in reality, he came to demonstrate, to put the face of God on a person that we might see God and then live out among us in such a way that we might order our life after him and live up to and into our highest identity as human beings. This is why in 2 Corinthians we hear these words, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Actually, I think that's Colossians. First, in 2 Corinthians we, we hear these words, he made him sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him become sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, like right now. Like right now, you and I can live an ordered life in such a way that we live out the righteousness, the rightness, the right things of God while we are alive. And this is what made the, the fourth century bishop or theologian Athanasius during a time when the church was corrupt and selling out to politics and selling out to the empire. Athanasius said, no, no, we were made for more than this. He became what we are that we might become what he is. Christ came to redeem us, yes, to find a way to get to heaven. But the way I like to say it is Jesus came not simply to show us the way to see heaven, he came to show us the way to be human. Can you let that sit with you for a moment? Jesus didn't simply come to show us the way to see heaven, he came to show us the way to be human. This is why he said in John's gospel, the 14th chapter, the sixth verse, I am the way the truth, the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. Now often when we hear that verse, we hear it so many times quoted in contexts 
that are out of the context of its original intent. Sometimes we'll use that verse as a way to somehow prove how one religion is better than other religions as if God has a favorite religion. Instead, the context is so much more powerful and so much more meaningful. It's the last night of their life together. Jesus, they had had the supper, they had broken bread, they had shared the cup. Jesus had washed their feet. He was going to be arrested that night. He says to them, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you cannot come yet. Now it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified for the Father. And it filled all of those who were listening with anxiety and fear and a little bit of panic and they began to speak to one another and to him. And Peter, this is where Peter opens his mouth and sticks his foot right in it, you know. No, Lord, no matter what happens, it doesn't have to end this way. In fact, I'll go with you. I've got your back. In fact, I will go all the way to the point of death for you. And Jesus says, Peter, you're... You're being chasatan. You're being a, a stumbling block, an adversary to the plan here. You, by the time the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. So then he speaks words to an anxious room. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and you, I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may also be. And you know, watch this line, you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you, if you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do, you do know him and have seen him. You've seen him. I love this moment of intimacy between he and Thomas and the others. Thomas, come on. What do you mean you don't know the way? How can you not know the way? We've spent years together and every night we camp together and we eat together. For years we have been serving together, preaching together, healing the sick together. We've, do you know the way that you've seen me yield my life to the will of the Father? Did you see the way I did that? Did you see the way that I humbled myself and emptied out myself for everyone. Did you see that? Did you see the way in which I always seemed to bring someone who was lost and forgotten and overlooked and lonely from the outskirts to the very center of the consciousness of whatever room we were in? Did you see the way I did that? Did you see the way that I did justice and I loved mercy and I walked humbly before my God. Did you see that, Thomas? 
Because that is the way, and you know the way. I have enfleshed the way. I am the way. But I'm not just the way. I am the truth. Thomas, did you hear anything I said for the last three years? Did you hear the way I talked about the nature and character of the divine? Did you hear the way I spoke about mercy and forgiveness? And did you hear me tell the truth about the nature of a God who doesn't grant forgiveness because of our performance, but grants forgiveness because of his love? Did you hear me tell the truth and and constantly try to tear down the lie of separation that there are some who are holier than others and some cleaner than others? Did you see me tell the truth about that? Did you see me and hear me, Thomas, proclaim the reality that our reconciliation with God does not come trickling down from the hegemony of hierarchical religious structures and meritocracies, It doesn't come from what you can do. It comes from the ocean depth of the waves of God's grace and love that flow out of the very nature of God. This is the truth. And did you see me telling the truth? Because you know this to be true and I am the enfleshment of all that you have heard and seen that is so true. I am the truth. But I'm not just the way and I'm not just the truth. I am the life. Thomas, the Zoe, I am the life that is truly life. Did you see every time we came across one who was broken, my work to put them back together? Did you see us bring sight to those who could not see? Did you see us lift up the lame that they might walk again? It was because they too, not just you, Thomas, are intended to experience life in the fullest sense I am that life. And every act of mercy and every expression of compassion that you saw in me is the way of God. It's the truth of God. It's the life of God. And often the way I say it is, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one can have access to the Father but through that way, through that truth, through that life. Often I will say it this way, the Jesus way is the truth about life. And there were they who believed that so deeply that for the first several decades of the Christian movement, before we were even known as Christians, we picked up that name in Antioch as a a kind of demeaning title that we were called little Christs because we acted like Jesus. We repaired things, loved the unlovely, welcomed the unwelcomed. Before we even picked up the name Little Christs, we were called people of the way. Because every fiber of the the dash of their life, every punctuated moment in the course of their journey was saturated, permeated with the Christ of God. Do you know what it would be like to have every fiber of you permeating, saturated with the Christ consciousness, the awareness of the living, breathing, risen Christ living in you, the hope of glory. What they discovered, our early sisters and brothers in the faith, was that they were so 
saturated by the love of Christ that his mind was in their thoughts. His words were being spoken from their lips. His acts of mercy and generosity and compassion were in their open hands. His radical inclusivity and welcome were found in their embracing arms. His call, his his mission to go and seek they who are lost, to leave the 99, to find the one who cannot find his way back, were in their feet. His perspective was in their eyes. And his love was in their hearts. And every moment of Christ-like sharing, every time there was a conversation that, that lifted up and glorified his name, it was as if eternity was breaking into the right now. It's as if the kingdom that is to come was somehow breaking in to the interactions and the exchanges that they were having with one another. And you know why? Because it was. And it is now. Out of all the decisions that you have to make in this short or long dash that you call your life, there is one decision that will have eternal impact. One question. And today you will answer a thousand questions before sun set this evening. And this week you'll ask yourself and answer 10,000 questions before the end of the week. Everything from what shall we eat to what shall we wear to what spouse will I spend the rest of my life with to where will we live and what vocation will I employ in what location will we live? Of all the questions that must be asked, there is one question that has eternal impact. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Because we can deny him or we can yield to him. And denying him comes in a variety of shades and flavors. We think that denying Christ simply looks like this. I don't believe it. I'm walking away from it. I don't buy it. That's denying Christ, yes. But do you know what else is denying Christ? Wearing the label Christian and choosing to live in a way that is antithetical to the way of Jesus. Also what is denying is to wear the label Christian and participate in systems and structures and power systems that are antithetical to the truth that he came to proclaim about the nature of God and who can be loved and who can be rescued is also a denial of the Christ to wear the name Christian and to participate in any activity that keeps some or any from living the life that Jesus came to provide when he said, I came that they, 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 inside and outside this church, that they might have life 
and have it to the fullest. So the question that I ask today is what you will do with Jesus is not just for those who have never said yes to following him, it's for me, it's for you, it's for everyone who follows him because maybe it's time at the end of this How to Be Human series to renew our radical commitment to let the way, the truth, and the life of our Christ permeate every decision we make, every word that we speak, every post that we place online, and every interaction we have with one another, with every stranger, and even with an enemy. What will you do with Jesus? This is how you be human, by fixing your eyes upon Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And the degree to which you welcome the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus into your life, here, now, in the dash, will determine the degree to which you experience it on the other side of your expiration date from here into eternity. 